Thank you for listening to this message from Two Rivers Church in Cooper City, Florida. We exist to saturate South Florida and beyond with the hope of Jesus Christ. Now sit back, relax, and we hope you enjoy the message. It says here, it says, O oh Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even the darkness I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake, when I wake up, you are still with me. Oh, God, if only you would destroy the wicked. Get out of my life, you murderers. They blaspheme you. Your enemies misuse your name. Oh, Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I despise those who oppose you? Yes, I hate them with total hatred for your enemies are my enemies. Search me, oh, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. You may be seated. Well, welcome to week two of our series one. Is there anyone here that this is your first time with us? Are there anyone, any first time visitors with us today? We have a packet we wanna give you. If you would just slip your hand up. All right, if you are watching online and this is your first time with us online, we thank you. And we thank you for tuning in to the second week of one. In preparing this, this is, uh, this is one of those messages that, that really gets me stirring, that in preparing this, I really got my heart just bubbling over about how God loves me and about his thoughts of me and about the greatness and the great fervency and attention that he gives me. But it also brought a great awareness to, to me and where I stand at and how I live and where I live. If I had a stethoscope, I would wear it when I did this message because this message is all about the heart. It's all about a heart check. Put your hands on your heart and say, God, check my heart. This is not about my neighbor. It's not about my parents. It's not about my children. It's not about my spouse. I'm not going to think about who I wish was here to hear it or who I think needs to hear it. I need to hear it. This is for me. <laughs> All right. In Galatians 1, and, and a message like this, I just want you to find yourself in it. In Galatians 1, Paul makes this statement in verse 10. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. There are a lot of us that find ourselves in the middle of this struggle of trying to please men 
and trying to please God. Which one do we submit to? Which one do we bow to? And we would all love to say, you know, I want to I want to submit to God and my life is submitted to God. And we all would like to say, I don't have to please men. But most times when we use language like, I don't, I'm not here to please men, I'm here to please God, that's my way of excusing the fact that I may have offended somebody or I may owe someone an apology or this. And we use it to defend our stance instead of really checking who we are or where we are. Uh, just to start this thing off, uh, plain and simple, we all know that we should please God and not please men because men are wrong almost 100% of the time, right? They're going to judge you wrong almost 100% of the time. I'll tell you a story about three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, I was sitting in my office, and I had a couple of meetings with some staff members. And they came in, and I was sitting at my chair, and I'm listening to them, and I'm asking them things, and I'm thinking, man, their feet stink through their shoes, right? You ever been with someone whose feet stinks through their shoes? If you have kids, it's usually your kids are in the car and you're like, did you take your shoes off? And they're like, no. And it's like, man, throw those shoes away and burn your feet, right? So I was sitting in my office and I'm like, man, their feet stink through their shoes, right? And so I'm sitting there and I'm trying to be attentive and I'm trying to seem wise and I'm trying to have a godly answer and something to say, but I can't concentrate because every time I turn my head, I smell a little feet cheese. And um, well then, the meeting was over, that staff member left the office and another staff member came in and I was like, their feet stink too, <laughs> right? And I'm judging them and I'm, this is my perspective as a man, I'm assuming that they have this problem. And then I'm sitting there and I'm like, and I slide down and I start smelling my wrist. And I had this new watch I had just bought a couple of weeks ago with a leather band and I'd never had a watch with a leather band before. And so I'm working out every morning with Carlos, and I'm sweating, and I got all the sweat, and my, my watch band smells like feet. And so every time I'm sitting like this trying to seem deep, it stinks really bad in my face, and I'm, I'm blaming everyone. So when they're leaving, men's perspective is your life is out of order, man. Your hygiene is awful. But it was really, I was just judged poorly. And <laughs> I said that to say, we get caught in this struggle a lot where we want to please God, or, or uh, we want to please God, but we struggle with pleasing men. We must never forget that we have an audience of one, okay? We have an audience of one. There is one who watches everything that we do. There is one who is watching everything and the way we live. But the world that we live in is a world that teaches us to please people. It's a world that teaches us that we have to have the approval of people and have people on our side and do this and they have to be with us in order for us to make a decision. We have things like the internet and social media and, and, and avenues of which we can put our every thought and, and every activity online in front of people all the time. And we want people to like what we do and we want them to, to see what we're doing and be appreciative of it. And so that builds this wanting to please people within us. Not only that, peer pressure causes us to try to fit in to the, to the groups that we sit in. And peer pressure, I know we like that term for teenagers, but we all have peers and we all have different pressures at different levels to fit in, be it at work, be it in this class, be it here, be it here. But peer pressure comes in and causes us to try to fit in a certain group. And even in the church, what will happen is you will have people leave a church or switch churches because at their last church, everything wasn't their way. And you'll get that, and so what'll happen a lot of times is, is, is pastors struggle and leaders struggle and churches struggle because you have to figure out whether you're gonna lead by God's principles or by people's preferences. Because a lot of issues are not biblical, they're just preference issues. And America itself, the Church of America, forgets that God's kingdom is a sovereign monarchy. 
that God is a king and his kingdom should reflect his order and his word. Instead, because we are a democratic government, we think that we should treat God's government like a democracy. So if we can't vote it this way and it's not this way that we like, then we try to create that or make that and it turns the church into a people-pleasing business as well. But we have this audience of one that we live for. And we can never forget that Psalms 39, which is what we read just now, is the most amazing point of this factor of how big our audience is with God on what kind of platform God has given us to live our life in front of him, no matter what type of life we live. And so we went through this thing verse by verse, and what we found is that it's God that examines our hearts and knows everything about us. That's the good and that's the bad. As to where people around you, whether it be in your school, on your job, at your church, in the grocery store, they only know what you tell them. No, God knows everything about you, not just your highlight reel. You know, I, I kind of say that when I, when I look at my family and I look at what people think about me and say about me outside the house. For instance, you guys, you guys get my highlight reel. You get what I've prepared to come up here. You get the, the study that I've been in for, you know, for the years. You get the polished presentation of God's word. And while my wife, she gets the uncut version while I'm trying to walk it out and I'm teaching it on Sunday, but I ain't really got it down on Monday. And she gets to see, well, God even gets deeper than that. He sees all of our right, all of our wrong. It goes on to say through that scripture says that he knows all of our thoughts and our every move. There are no secrets from him. What you thought you could bury under your mattress, what you thought you could delete by erasing your, your internet history, what you thought you can put up in your closet, what you thought you could put a, a code on your phone, what you thought that you could float a check to do this or to do that, or a white lie you could tell to this person to get their business. No, no, God has, he knows your secrets. He knows every thought about it. He also knows all the good that you're trying to do. He, he has all of this knowledge. It says that he knows which, every word you say, even before you say it. God doesn't get caught up in the rumors. People don't know what you say about something. People don't know what you think about something. People know what so-and-so told so-and-so that you said about this. You guys ever played the telephone game? Is that what it's called, the telephone game? What's it called? Okay, because I wasn't confident. Taylor doesn't seem too sure. He's like, yeah, whatever you say, it's that, you know. <laughs> but the telephone, the telephone game is, uh, and maybe he was confident, but he was stroking his mustache so intently that I couldn't figure out. <laughs> the telephone game is, is great for, for proving that people don't know what they're talking about. God, thank, thank him that he doesn't play the telephone game with our lives. But he knows everything that we're going to say even before we say it. And that goes down to the good and the bad. And after all of that is said and he knows all of that about, it, he, about us, he still surrounds us. He says he goes behind us and before us. Another translation says he hems us in and he puts his blessing on us. And so thankful that he knows all of the good and bad Yet he never pushes us away, and he still protects us, and he still blesses us, and that I can never escape from his presence, that there's nowhere I can go. In my good times, if I ascend to heaven, his spirit is there. In my bad times, if, if I go down to the grave and life is at its pits and I've walked away from everything that he wants to do and I decide to live in that pain, he's still there watching. He's still giving me a platform to be in front of him. If I try to run from him and get on the wings of the morning, it says, or go to the farthest oceans, if I try to escape from him, it's still him who supports me. 
When I've shut every person out, when I've closed every account, when I've turned my computer off and no one knows where I am and I'm trying to hide from people, he is still there. He is still watching. He is still interested. He has still given me his attention. It goes on to say that with all these things, he's watching us and even when we try to run or when we try to hide in darkness and darkness covers us and our thoughts get dark and we get angry and we don't reflect him, that darkness and light are the same to him. That then he's still with us and he's still watching us and he's still focusing on us because he is the audience of this presentation and the stage that we live on. He goes on and David is explaining this, says, when I tried to hide in my mess, you couldn't. Before I was even born, you were watching me. And this blows me away. And they gave a good deal of uh, five or six verses. David talks about this. It blows me away because I think of being born and I think about what people can see. And there's, if there's ever a time that I was never judged by men, it was when I was being formed in my mother's womb. They may have judged my mother whether she was married or not. They may have judged the mother whether she was a teenager or not, whether she was a divorcee or not. They may say those aren't the best circumstances, but no one ever looks at the baby and judges the baby. They look at the mother's stomach begin to grow. They wait till they're 20 weeks and everyone's waiting to know, is it a boy? Is it a girl? The world is watching, especially now. They're waiting to throw the baby shower. We want to see the sonogram. And now the sonograms are 3D so we can know, does he look like mom or does he look like dad before he ever got here? We're watching. Everyone's watching. They, they want to touch the stomach. They want to rub the stomach. Did he kick? Is he kicking now? Ready to go. Time to go to the hospital. Contractions, where are we at? Everyone is so attentive. But even then, God beat every man on this planet because he watched me before I was formed. And he didn't just watch these stages that men could judge. He watched every blood cell and every ligament be woven together. And he breathed breath into my lungs before they were ever created. And he held me there and he protected me from the lifestyle around. When my mother could have gotten in that car accident and it would have damaged me, it was God who was watching me and kept that car away. Maybe not for her, but for me because he's watching me. When she could have drank something that could have killed me or, or smoked something that could have killed me or, or ate something that I could have been allergic to, it was his hand that had me inside and the way he created us was inside of a protective sack inside of their body that we're not part of their body. We're just in there. And he has given us his full attention and knew every day before any day ever came to be, it was written in his book, he knew our thoughts are far off. That is an incredible audience. That is an incredible audience. That is an audience that you should always want to please. That is an audience that you should always be focused on. And where people have judged us or mocked us or never accepted us or abandoned us or tried to change us and mold us and, and walk out of our lives. God has never done that. Yet we struggle between God and men still. We look at these resumes and we still struggle between pleasing God and pleasing men. And you say, I don't. Well, I'm not gonna call you a liar. But everyone giggling just did. You see? Now, here, here's the deal. We, we have this struggle. We have our parents. And I'm, even though there's children in the room, I'm not talking children to parents, I'm talking parents to their parents, adults to parents. Because we choose our career paths a lot of times wanting to please our parents. If dad doesn't like it that we're taking this career choice, we'll cave to it. 
If mom doesn't like it that we're doing this, we'll cave to it. And sometimes God has told us to do a certain thing that goes against that, but because we live in mom and dad's house and because they're paying for college and because we want to keep this happy and that happy, we don't walk in a calling of God that we know God said to us because our parents don't see that as a valuable option. And maybe that's not everyone's case in here, but I've seen it. I've seen 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds feel that God has called them to ministry, to serve, to intern, to go to a discipleship program. And parents say, if you do that, I'm writing you off. And they don't. They go to college. They become doctors or lawyers or other things that they don't want to be, that they are not passionate about. And they get in careers and they live their entire life dissatisfied and miss out on possibly the road God would have put them to change their life. With our parents, we get married. And you know one of the biggest problems outside of money and sex that affects a marriage? Your parents. Married couples, raise your hand. Let me see you. Your parents ever got in your business? Too much? Married couples, raise your hands. Don't nod your head or laugh at this. Are you married to a daddy's girl or a mama's boy? Married to somebody with princess syndrome? Right? <laughs> They don't like what you do, they call in home, taking mommy and daddy's advice and bringing that back into the marriage. Well, mom and dad aren't married to your spouse. And though there's safety in a multitude of counselors, yes, there is. But a lot of times husbands don't know how to walk away from mom and be married to their wife. And to keep it happy with mom, the wife has to succumb and be, and be not respected in a certain manner and be put down at holidays because son won't say something to mom or vice versa, and carry on. We have these scenarios where we want to please people. When God's word tells us how to lead our house, we forget about that. When God's word tells us to honor our, our, our wives, to, for our wives to respect or submit to their husbands, for husbands to love their wives, when it says submit ye to one another, we forget this portion that we are one flesh, and we abandon one flesh to keep the life we were growing up in, but we left that life to cleave, right? So do we please God or do we please men? even if we call them mom and dad. You see, Jesus said, if you love your mother and father more than you love me, you're not worthy of the kingdom. So he, he knows that this is a struggle for people. He knows how much we love our earthly mothers and fathers. But he makes a point that at the end of the day, it is his word that matters because he is the only audience. Because when you die, your mom and dad will not stand there and say, good, good job. Because mom and dad will always say, good job, I'm proud of you. But it is the audience of one that stands there, and then you too become the audience that rewatches your life as he tells you where you go. You see, not only that, we get into it with our friends. Boyfriends, girlfriends, just friends, best friends. And we, we succumb to different things, and we adapt who we are so that we can fit in. And I know he said that he respects what you want to do. And we, I know that he said that we can wait till we get married. But every time you sit down and you're alone, he tries to push his limits. And do you yield to God or do you yield to him? I know you said that you want to wait till you get married, but, but she sure does not cover things up when she comes over and is very enticing. Do you set a boundary and say, I want to please God? Or do you just try to keep the relationship happy so you don't have an argument? I know you told your best friends you don't do this and you don't live like that, yet you get an invitation every weekend. You get an invitation to everything. Do we set a boundary? Do we set a stage for our life to please God or do we succumb and submit? Because anything you entertain for too long, you'll fall to. 
I know we get into social atmospheres and, and I don't drink, but since everyone's drinking, I know I usually can do one glass of wine, but since the party's still going, I know that, that this is a standard for me, but tonight is just a party, so I won't even mention I'm a Christian. It's just a work thing. Where do we submit in our lives about our friendships and those atmospheres and those things we come to? Is it God or is it man? With our church friends. Church friends are the hardest because you think that they're on your side for Jesus. But the reality of it is, a lot of times you have to set your standard down in order to pick up someone else's compromise to fit into that clique in the church. Oh, it's all good to praise God and to pray and to come to the altar, but when they call you with gossip and, and you tell them, hey, look, that's gossip, you're out the clique. So though you may never say it, guess what you do? You listen to it. Do you please God or please men? You, you lower your standards or whatever those things are that you know God putting you to compromise because we all should look alike and be alike. Or we come and we fake like we have it all together so that church people don't judge us, so that we are not set down for ministry, so that we, don't, we can't get the help we need because we're faking it till we make it. That is a drug addict's quote. Fake it till you make it. The church has adapted a quote of addiction to make his lifestyle. And we forget that we have this audience of one that is always watching us, loving us when we're hiding, when we're in darkness, when we're doing these things, that it's the same to him and his strength is supporting us. And when the men that we're trying to impress, I tell my kids this all the time, dear Armani, in four more years, son, all these people that you're trying to impress, you won't even know anymore. They won't even call you anymore. When you go away to college, you create new friends, and in 10 years, you'll come back and wonder whatever happened to them. Because when people walk away, God's still there. You see, God knows our heart. God knows our heart. God does know our heart. I think there's a slide that says, God knows our heart. <laughs> so God knows our heart, <laughs> right? This is the most dangerous quote in the church. Oh, I hate this quote. Do you want to know why I hate this quote? When someone tells you, God knows my heart, do you know what that means? Can I translate it for you? It means shut up, mind your business. I don't want to talk about it. And that is all it means. There are certain sentences you know in the church mean, get out of my face, this is not your business. This is one of them. Another one is the family card. This is my family. That means back up. <laughs> it means I don't want to be held accountable with this. I own this. But this God knows your heart. It is the biggest slap in the face to anyone who wants to mentor, to anyone who wants to befriend somebody, to anyone who wants to get into the deeper things. The dangerous thing about it is this. It is true. God does know your heart. And he knows my heart. He truly knows our heart. He knows the things we're saying in our heart. He knows the real reasons that we hide from men and we hide it between, behind the godliness of him knowing our heart. He knows the fear we're operating in or the lack of faith. He knows the bitterness. He knows the anger that caused your decision when you didn't wait on him in prayer. He knows your impatience. He knows your heart. So when we use this as a deflection, we better realize the truth of it is that he does, in fact, 
know every detail of our heart. He knows every anxious thought. He knows every word and everything. He is fully aware. And this is the conflict where we lose it. This conflict between God and men and God knowing our heart and where we really stand. This is where we lose our integrity. This is where we lose our character. This is where we lose our resolve. This is where we lose our commitment. This is where we lose our power. This is where we lose our repented heart. This is where we try to justify and let excuses come in to the things that we've made settle for. This is the place that when we try to please men rather than God and we have to live in it, this is where our softness to God disappears. And then in turn, this is where our testimony disappears. Because the world then sees, since we switched audiences from God to those watching, now the world sees. And that audience then sees all the infighting. That audience sees and judges every time you said one thing and you did another. That audience judges every time that this fell over or this was anger or this and this. The world sees and we lose our testimony. You got to drink a water on that. This is, this is a hard part. <laughs> um, they see our flakiness. And we exchange God for men. And we live a life where we have exchanged God for men. And I'm going to show you just a few arenas that we do this in so that we can you know, kind of have some clarity on it. And this is not by far an exhaustive list. So you, you know in your own life or possibly areas that need to be confronted by this very truth. But here are some arenas. The first one is our worship services. We exchange God for men. You see, Romans 1, it says this in verse 21. It says, yeah, they knew God but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And as they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like, I think he's like this, I think he's like that, I, we're gonna do like this, as a result, their minds became dark and confused. So now you can't even see what God is really like and you start believing this. It says you become confused, claiming to be wise. We can quote scripture about it. We, know, we can quote scripture and see to be wise. It says they became utter fools. It says that instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worship idols made to look like men. We change God for men in our worship services. You see, the only part of these services on Sunday morning that we give to God are the worship portion and the altar. These are the parts that we exclusively dedicate to, to giving directly to God. This portion that we're in right now, this portion is for you. So that when it comes to the altar, we can give you to God or we can give an issue to God. But this portion is for you. And so these portions that are for God, we gotta think, what man do we exchange him for? Well, very first and foremost, a lot of times, it's us ourselves, it's you, it's me. And in a sense, for instance, we get these concert venues, right? I'm and I, talking to me too. We have these stages and instruments and bands and lights that move and and let me not say anything negative about it because God loves extravagant worship. God loves it when we make his name big. God loves it when we go all out to display his glory and to make love in the atmosphere and, and sing glorious things and do it as big as we can. He loves that. But do we install these things to make his name big? Or do we install these things to make your experience fun? And what was once an asset just became a liability. 
What was once something that can bring a great value to a worship service because of the intent of the heart was for you and not for him, change the focus of it all. And that's why you'll get division in churches of I don't think we need those lights and I don't think we need this and I don't think we need this because when it's explained it's, well, this is what the world likes and this will draw the world. Well, we're here to please God. And so if we said we put this here to make God's name great, you might get less confusion. The worship services have been exchanged. And whether we're going to please men with our worship and whether we're going to please God with our worship. We come in and we say, we replace God with us and we say, are these songs I like? <laughs> How many of you guys ever said that? There are a few songs that I hate that we sing, just so you know. But you don't know which ones. And the reason is when they come on, they're not singing to me. God is still great. And he is still faithful and he is still worthy and the words of those songs still glorify him. So whether they are to my liking, my genre, I still give him worship. But we we will sit in these services and replace, well, that's not my favorite song or I don't like this beat or I don't like that. And we exchange God with men. We get in these things where service better not be too long. I like a 25 minute worship set. Don't repeat the chorus too many times. Bring it to a close. I sure hope he don't get up there and extend this. <laughs> God never gets tired of being celebrated. God never gets tired of receiving glory. He is not exhausted with a 32-minute worship service. He is not tired of us closing our eyes, lifting our hands, and telling him he is awesome for 45 minutes. But if we can't get to the restaurant on time and please ourselves, we got to write a note to the pastor and we got to put it on Facebook. Now, I know none of you guys have ever written me a note or put it on Facebook, but in other churches, they do these things. You know, we come late. We say worship, that part's not important as long as I get there before the preacher gets on. We're on time. We sneak in and get what's for us. But we forget that the real audience is God. And we have ignored that. And he's the one watching you not set your clock. And he's the one watching you get out of bed and, oh, God, I got to go to church. And you, I mean, what if you were late, but you were worshiping on the way? At least, you know, the audience is still getting his. It's grumbling all the way. I don't know. What you, this is just me. This is me. This is I, this, whatever. Uh, <laughs> so we come late and we don't sing we want them to sing for us yeah those lights are for us I hope the drums don't mess up I hope they get all the tracks right come on Becky sing to me I love your voice you do such a great job leading worship no we are all on the stage we are all on the praise team we are all in the choir. We all have the same audience. And it is not this. It is this. There is one. So you are coming in. When you run in late, you're running onto the stage late. And the audience can see the lack of excellence that was put into the preparation for the gift we're giving to him. Because we're all in that stage. Then on the altars, We walk out on the climax of the presentation to God. When this is why we exist and we're giving lives to Jesus and people are getting it right and giving issues, now it's time to walk off the stage. No, oh, he, he is the audience. 
And we are just members in this presentation. Another area where we confuse God with us or we exchange God with us is when God does the miraculous. Now this one, this one really, is, this is a tricky one, and maybe it applies to you and maybe it doesn't. But let me ask you this. When God does a miracle in your heart, check your heart, does he get center stage or is he just the best supporting actor in the contract you secured? Is he just the best supporting actor in that great opportunity? Is it about your skill set and all the hard work you put in and people glorify that? And you mention God, but it's more of an accident. It's not the full thrust. Is he the best supporting actor in that healing? Are people like, wow, look, glad to see you back. You know, you, you, the resolve you showed through that thing. And, and, and yeah, thank God. Or is it all about God? When you've come through a painful life, and I'll use like my own, I have to make sure I check my pride because people will say, you, man, you went through a lot. You, must, you, you are strong. You are, and they'll give me credit that I don't deserve. No, I was a child. I was weak. But when I was hidden from him, it was the same to him. And he, he gave me strength. I, so I can't take credit for being here. Because by all standards, I didn't earn any of this. He gave, he gave freely. He was the audience. So do we let him take center stage? And it's a hard issue and it's tricky sometimes because pride is sneaky. And one minute you're doing it right and the next minute you're struggling with it. And Jesus had to even bring perspective to the miraculous. So this is not something that we alone struggle with. The Bible says Jesus sent 72 out in pairs of two and sent them out to heal the sick and to cast out demons and to do these things. And when they came back, it says, it says that they said, Everything was great. They were filled with joy and they were rejoicing. And they said, even demons are subject to us when we use your name, which sounds like praise. It sounds like giving God glory. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And I've given you authority that you can walk on serpents and scorpions. He says, but rather don't glory in that. Glory that your name is written and registered in heaven before the audience. You see, we can come and say, man, look, I'm excited. God healed me. And Jesus could say, absolutely. By my stripes, you're healed. I cast out sickness and infirmity. That is easy for me. But you know what? Don't get so caught up in that that you forget that the audience where your name is registered is more important than that temporary thing you're celebrating because it's a healing to a temporary body. But don't forget about the audience. He goes on and brings perspective further. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, he says this. He says, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Facebook, let me just harp on this for a minute. It's a great technology. It's a great technology. I think there are more people on Facebook than there are people in America. Things like 500 million users or more than that. There's only like 300 million people in America. Um, anyway, it's a great technology that can connect people and can provide resources and can provide evangelism and we can use these things. But if we're not careful, things like this are a direct attack against the written word of God where he says, don't go doing all, your, all the things you're doing publicly. And so we get caught in this thing, this issue of our heart. Not, see, these things are not sin issues. These things are just heart issues. Because am I posting this me with the homeless to inspire you and bring inspiration or to draw your admiration? 
Am I trying to, to, to get you to step out in excitement and using this as a tool? Or once I posted it, did my heart get wicked and I followed up to see who enjoyed my work? It's a tricky thing. Jesus says you don't do this stuff publicly. He says you do it in private and your father will reward you. Then he goes on to say when it comes to things like giving, he says when you give, you don't make a, a, you make a big parade about it. When you give to the poor, when you do this, you don't make a big parade about it. You don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. So you give it in secret and your father who sees everything will reward you. You know, everyone doesn't need to know that you gave to the poor or that you gave this family these shoes or that you took this person out or that you made this huge contribution or that you paid your tithes or that you did your offering or that you did any of these things that there is an audience who's watching and that audience knows this he knows when you're giving to the poor or not he knows when you're giving your tithes or not he's fully aware when you give your offerings or not you see God's the audience not men. There's a, there's a reason why they, it was made sure to be put in the Bible by the Holy Spirit that Jesus watched the offering. It didn't say anyone else was watching because he is the audience. When you give, God receives it. So if you give it to the poor, Jesus said, when you gave it to the least of these, you gave it to me. When you give your tithe and offering, it's God that says, prove me when you bring it into my house. Now, it's God who knows that you did it, and it's God who knows that you didn't. And you don't need a parade to celebrate it, nor do you need to think you can find any justification for ignoring it. Because God's watching, and he's the one who receives it. And it's out of him and your relationship that these things are done. It's out of your and his relationship on whether you're true to his word. And you know what? If that homeless person that the Holy Spirit told you to give to, if you, if you say, well, I'm not doing it because he's just going to drink it away. Well, then you didn't give to God. By not giving to him, it wasn't about him. It was God who was receiving it. If you say, I'm not going to give to that church because all they want is your money, but you held back from giving to God who put that on you and challenged us to be this way. And it wasn't about the church or whether they take that money and have a bonfire and, and make s'mores with it, you know? It's, <laughs> sorry, I'm trying to lighten up the, the giving mood there. Um, <laughs> so God is the receiver. It go on further in Matthew 6, and he says, when you pray, don't do it publicly, babbling all on street corners and doing this and doing that for everyone to see. He says, like some of these, he says, but when you pray, go in your house, shut the door, and what you do in private, your father who sees everything, the audience of one who knows everything, will reward you. You see, the thing about this is we get caught up in doing it publicly, and a lot of times our public life doesn't necessarily reflect our private practices. We can look very godly. And this is where we get caught up sometimes because people come to church and they look for husbands and wives and they look godly. They look like Christians and they know the language and they can speak the language and they can do this and they can do that. But behind, at home, there's never a closing of the door and a praying or a pulling out of God's word and living in it. It's not done for the audience of one. It's done for the pleasure in the audience of people to qualify you and give you position. And it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue on, on, on whether you're going to fast. Jesus goes on to talk about it. He says, um, he says as far as fasting, um, you don't do this for everyone to see it. Put a breath in, please. For all of us, put a breath mint in, please. Everyone say, I will 
put a breath mint in <laughs> when I fast. Because your breath stinks when you fast. It does. When you don't eat, your stomach, well, I don't know what it is, but it's, it's awful to all of us and God. No. <laughs> Jesus says, wash your face. Comb your hair. Don't walk around all miserable letting everyone know and, and that you're fasting. Stop the bragging. I know people that are go, yeah, God gave me this revelation when I was on my 21-day fast, da-da-da-da-da. You know, when I was on my Daniel fast, da-da-da-da-da-da. And we brag about these things. And do we want to be known as a spiritual elite or do we want to be known in heaven? So the audience is only God. Even with forgiving, you know, forgiving is not a, he talks about this in Matthew 6. Forgiving is not about the offender. When you give forgiveness, it is not about the person you're giving it to. It's about the audience of one who says, if you forgive your brother, I'll forgive you. If you don't forgive your brother, I won't forgive you. The one who's really receiving when you forgive is you and God because he said, okay, you've just, you've just done what I told you. It's not about the person you're forgiving. We oftentimes make it about the people and, and we can walk around with our grudges and, and, and everyone else, we look like great Christians and we look like we got it all together and we look like we belong and we don't know that you haven't talked to your mom in three years or that that coworker, you're going into work every day and looking the other way and not walking by them. But God knows because he is the audience. He's the one that's there in your darkness. He's the one that's there that is the same to him. He's the one that you can't get away from. He's watching you and he's watching these things because he loves you. Jesus goes on to say in this chapter, he says, uh, you can't serve two masters. He says, you will love one and hate the other. You'll be faithful to one and despise the other. You can't have two masters. He goes on to say, so what, don't worry about things like your food, what you're going to drink, and what you're going to wear. And we get caught up in these things because, especially here in South Florida, what restaurants we're eating out at, who we can go to dinner with, what we're wearing, are we fashionable, do we blend in? Or the cost of living is so high down here that I can't afford it, so either I live for it or I struggle by it. And Jesus says, that unbelievers, the mind of unbelievers are dominated by these things. He says, rather, you as believers should seek first the kingdom of God, the audience of one and his righteousness, then all these things will be added to you. So he adjusts the perspective. It's not that you can't have them. It's where's the audience? He confronts that. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 15, King Saul is ruling, and God says to Samuel, go and tell Saul, because I have anointed him king, that I want him to do this thing. I want him to go and make good my debt with the Amalekites. It's time for them to pay good on their bill. And he says, I want him to go and kill everyone, every Amalekite, man, woman, child, baby, Every one of their donkeys, their sheep, their cows, their bulls, their pigeons, and then burn down everything that they have and leave nothing behind. This is the word that, that, that God gives for Saul because God anointed Saul. Samuel gives this word to Saul. What Saul does is the Bible says in 1 Samuel 15 that Saul goes and he, 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 he takes 210,000 men. And they go to this, to this camp where the Amalekites live and they decimate it. They kill every person in there except the king. And see, the, the thing is, they would used to take the kings in battle, 
and make them slaves and servants and eunuchs within their own palace as a trophy and a reminder of their great works as kings. So he killed everyone except for the king. And the Bible records that he destroyed everything that they thought had no value. But he kept the things of value and plundered them for himself and the people. And they kept the fattest calves and the fattest bulls. And, and so Samuel wakes up in prayer and God's response is, I regret the day I ever made Saul a king. Regret the day I ever blessed him and appointed him for this thing. And Samuel says, you know, why? And he gets in his dialogue with God. So he gets a word from God. He's got to go back to Saul and give it that God has rejected him as king. When he walks up to Saul, the Bible says that as he's coming, Saul, it comes to him and says, praise the Lord. I have been obedient to God's word. Look what he has given us. That's an amazing testimony for a man that did not obey God's word, but he believed it. And Samuel's response was, if you obey God's word, then what is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear? Saul's response was, well, I killed everyone except the king, and we kept the fatted animals because we want to go and make a sacrifice to God. We want to give him a sacrifice and an offering. So we saved these to give him an offering. And Samuel's response was, obedience is better than sacrifice. And rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. You see, we get caught up in this sometimes. And we don't be obedient to God. And later on, we have to pay a bigger price. And we try to serve harder and we try to do what works to reaccomplish what we should have just been obedient with in the first place. Not realizing that there is a witching spirit that wants to separate us from the will of God. This is what Saul, Samuel says to Saul. Saul's response is this. I repent that I did this. But now you come down with me and before the people, let us worship together. I know it's wrong, but just come hang out with me. It's okay. And Saul, Samuel says, no, he, he's going to leave. The Bible says that Saul rents his clothes, he hangs on to him, and he says, at least come down here before the people with me to honor me in front of them. He says, I know it was wrong. I gave in to the people and gave them what they desired, but at least you come down here and honor me with, with them. As a, as a believer, this should hurt us because we live in this place where someone has tried to convince the Christian, someone has tried to convince a believer, someone has tried to convince the church that we should lower our standard and give honor in places that God did not honor and never correct. That we should submit to the audience of people instead of the audience of God. It is the lie that we believed before we met Jesus, that we would live for people and denounce God. And it's the lie that we perpetuated that once we've accepted him, we really just put him on the back burner as something that accents our outfit. We forget that he is the one. And the Bible says that Samuel asks for the king, that they bring the king to him, and the king is so excited. This is, this is amazing. The king was so excited. He thought that he had been given grace and that he would be spared. That's how sin acts. Sin, when it thinks that it's took residency with you and you're not going to deal with it, it takes a great control of your life and likes to live in it and just like celebrates. They brought this king to Samuel. And Samuel took a sword and thrust it through this king, and, and he said, I'm going to uphold this standard. I know who's watching me. I know the audience that I live for, and whether it be this area in my life or this area in my life or this here or this here, when God has told me to do it, I'm only serving that audience. 
I'm only serving that audience. You see, man is unpleasable. If you know Jesus or if you don't, one thing you should know is that man is unpleasable. Proverbs 27 says this in verse 20, it says that the eyes of man are never full, that they are never satisfied. You'll never please that person. You'll never make everyone happy. You'll never gain the acceptance from everyone. Everyone will never cheer your name, no matter how much you live for them, no matter how much you give them, no matter how much you submit to them, they will never, ever all be on your side. The eyes of man cannot be quenched. But God knows our broken condition. He knows everything about us. Whether we know Jesus or not, he knows where we are. The Bible says our righteousness is filthy rags to him. That no matter where we stand, there is nothing about us that is great before God. There is nothing about us that is perfect. There is nothing about us that can be pleasing to him. So what he did was he gave us Jesus and his Holy Spirit so that he can see us through that filter. He sees us through his own righteousness. And he's pleased with us because of that. It says in Romans uh, it says in Romans 1.17 that he makes us right in his sight from beginning to end. That this is by faith. Men don't do this. Just the audience of one who has walked with us everywhere before we ever walked there, that has heard every thought, that has watched everything, that has laughed at us, that has smiled with us, that has mourned for us, that has cried for us, that he has watched our stage, that he has watched our life, and he has justified us. And David knew when he got through Psalms 139 and singing of God's greatness, and it really humbled him to know that God would still love me after he knows all of this about me, that he broke down into repentance in around verse 19 where he said, God, deliver me from people. They're your enemies. So I hate them. I hate the part of them that wants to keep me locked here and not pleasing you. I hate that with perfect hatred, shouldn't I? Your enemies are my enemies. God, deliver me from that. Know my heart. Search me and know me and see that there's no wicked way in me. And anything that offends me, that offends you, God, you take it from me. This is the repentance of, of the greatest worshiper who understood the audience of one. You see, David could have fell to this easy. He could have fell very easy because he had a lot of eyes on him. He was before one of the biggest audiences ever. And he could have forgot that it was about the one that was watching them all and thought that it was about him. And God will oftentimes put you in front of people, but you, can, you always have to remember who the audience is. You always have to remember who you're really in front of. Are you in front of people or are you in front of God? When you honk your horn in traffic, are you honking at God or are you honking at that person? When you drive past that person that you feel you should give to, are you driving past God or that person? When you don't go home and spend the time with your family that you're supposed to, are you ignoring God or your family? See, there's an audience of one. Jesus says this. He tells us, uh, in, excuse me, in, in Luke uh, 17, he's walking. The Bible says as he's walking, 10 lepers call out to him. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And he tells them to go before an audience. He says, go show yourself to the priests. The Bible says that they get up as they're walking towards this audience that God himself put them in front of. And as they began to walk, they were cleansed and healed. It says one of them realized that he had been healed and said, forget that audience. Forget what people are going to say when they see me. They said he ran back to Jesus. 
and fell at his feet and worshiped him to the audience of one. Jesus' astonishment said this. He says, weren't there 10 of you? Where are the others? But just this one Samaritan has worshiped me. Just this one has realized that there is only one real audience. Just this one among so many that I've healed, among so many that I've done great works for, among so many that I love and I'm with, just this small percentage has decided to realize the real audience is me. He says, because of your faith, because it takes great faith to live a life that pleases God. It takes great faith to learn how to love people and not push them away just because you have to push away their compromise. A lot of times we don't do that. We push them away completely and insulate ourselves or isolate ourselves. It takes great faith to live this life. He says, your faith has made you whole. Because it's one thing about getting God's healing in our condition of life for him getting us out of a jam and it's another thing of getting God's wholeness because we live for him and we're not dependent on people. We're not dependent on the thoughts of people that we can love them, that we can obey his every word, that we don't have to judge them but we know that our heart is right with him in every scenario and when it's not we confront it and we thank him for his grace for where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. But We always come back to the audience of one and make it about that and then wholeness surrounds us. I'd rather be a whole one than a half of one any day. I'd rather be all of what God has called me to be than just a piece of it here and then a piece of the world there. I can't even be complete no matter where I go. Here's what I want to do, just for a moment. Can I have everyone stand up? You've been sitting there listening to me. I'm sure some things have stirred. I'm sure somewhere in your heart you felt a little confrontation, possibly you should have, where you're like, oh, yeah, maybe I just missed it here. Maybe this snuck in on me. I'm not going to ask you to come down here today. I'm going to ask you to join the praise team. That while you're there, standing where you're standing, before the audience of one, which is not me, which is not the elders of the church, which is not the people who are watching in the seats, but that the one that created us, that never left us, that never forsaked us, the one who works all things together for our good, that's not men, the one that by which his judgment and his vindication that no weapon formed against me prospers, that one, can we just sing to him as a choir? Whether you know Jesus or not, whether your heart is right or not, makes no difference to him. Darkness is as light and his, his hand sustains. It doesn't make a difference whether he accepts your thank you. It does make a difference in the long run of what empowers you and where you end up. But even when your heart's not right, the Bible says he doesn't leave you. So no matter where you're at right now, can we acknowledge that we have the same audience? And can we sing together to that one? Thank you for listening. For more messages, you can visit us online at tworiverschurch.tv.